Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Bonus Episode 5, The Life and Times of James Buchanan, Triumph and Futility. For today, we have a special episode on the life of James Buchanan, and we'll pull out the next full episode on Kansas another week. On April 23, 1791, a Scots-Irish immigrant named James Buchanan celebrated the birth of his third son, who would receive the name James Buchanan, Jr., in his father's honor. The senior Buchanan had not spent his time in the United States idly or in vain, for he quickly achieved economic success. His son, therefore, had the opportunity to receive an excellent education and had good contacts to start out in life. The younger James Buchanan moved to Lancaster, then the state capital in Pennsylvania, and became the apprentice to a local lawyer. Legal apprenticeship in that day was the more usual way of moving up in the legal world. While attorneys typically had a good education, law was felt to be more a matter of practice than theory. It was grounded in books and texts, yes, but the reality lay in the courtroom. In 1812, and after three years of apprenticeship, Buchanan stepped up to the bar himself. Of course, he did so just in time for the largely pointless War of 1812. At least initially, that international crisis had relatively little impact on him. Unlike much larger wars, there was no general mobilization, and even the militia usually served sporadically and locally. When, in 1814, the British attempted to invade nearby Baltimore, James Buchanan joined a band and went off to fight as a common soldier, one of very few presidents ever to do so. However, he himself saw no action, as the American reserves were never needed. As a small historical note, Remember that this is the very same battle that sparked the creation of the Star-Spangled Banner. Buchanan had the unusual honor of being present at the event that gave rise to the National Anthem. Somehow, among the war, he also found time in 1814 to begin service in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, as a Federalist in the twilight of that party. This formed the beginnings of his political career. Now, in 1819, Buchanan's life became much more interesting when he began a pursuit of the hand of a young woman named Anne Coleman. Beautiful and a member of a prominent Lancaster family, Anne received the attention of the young but rising Buchanan with some interest. In many ways, he was exactly what her family might want in a suitor, and Miss Coleman accepted his proposal for marriage in that summer. However, shortly thereafter, Buchanan became distracted at his law practice in the middle of the Panic of 1819. He undertook a lot of time-consuming tasks for one of his clients. Now, what followed here is a bit murky. Miss Coleman evidently believed, or feared to believe, that Buchanan was only marrying her for money and or that he was also seeing other women. And this belief probably came from a gossiping socialite. Whatever the facts, Anne Coleman broke off the engagement and retreated to her family home, from which she refused to come out and see James Buchanan. Not long after... She was found dead, probably from taking too much opium-laced medicine. Despite his often frigid demeanor, Buchanan seems to have found life without Anne colder and darker still. The Coleman family refused to even allow him at the funeral, evidently blaming him for the tragedy. And Buchanan never again seriously pursued a wife. We will come back to this, but it appears that Miss Coleman's rejection and subsequent death greatly affected him. But he grieved for both in private. Instead, Buchanan then devoted himself to work and politics. He would flirt with women in the future, quite shamelessly actually, but doesn't appear to have taken any of it very seriously. 
he buried that part of his life with Anne. Despite the ongoing enmity of the Coleman family from this point, Buchanan Starr continued to rise and he would win election to Congress in 1820, with service beginning in 1821. Buchanan didn't set any records for youngest congressman, but he was still very youthful for the office. Though not a particularly noteworthy member, he was among those who wanted to merge the Federalist and Democrat-Republican parties together, in the short-lived era of good feelings. The idea was always something of a polite fiction covering political tensions, however. Then, in 1824, the Jacksonian Revolution burst forth and broke all political convention. This represents an interesting shift in Buchanan's life as well. He belonged to an older, somewhat more aristocratic world. He certainly had accomplishments to his name, but Buchanan's success was based in part on presenting himself as a gentleman. Jackson, with his proudly rough-hewn ways and direct personal appear to the frontier, broke with the way politics had been done for decades. Jackson did not especially feel any need to respect party insiders, and he made his opinions very clear. He disdained the kind of political horse trading and insider agreements that more or less were the entirety of politics. Buchanan, therefore, signed on to Jacksonian democracy immediately. There were good reasons for this, despite the rather obvious differences between the two men in character, ideology, and age. First, Buchanan's base of support were working men in Lancaster, not the social elite. Second, Buchanan saw that the political winds were blowing westward, and he figured he could sail with it. He figured correctly, and he helped swing Pennsylvania vote in 1824. Unfortunately, he also wound up hurling a political egg into the air that nearly struck Jackson in the face. In 1824, remember, Andrew Jackson won a plurality but not a majority of the Electoral College. Now, in the end, Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams joined their votes and thereby swung the presidency for Adams. Now, this is all cutting down the complex story naturally, but that's not the most important point here. As mentioned, Andrew Jackson's political standing rested on his reputation as an honest, if brash, military officer, not a wheeler-dealer Washington politician. But word eventually leaked out that Buchanan had tried to broker a Clay-Jackson alignment in the election of 1824. Now, just so everyone is on the same page, it's not clear that either Henry Clay or Andrew Jackson actually knew about Buchanan's interference. Certainly, neither man got involved in such a negotiation. However, other rivals, and that means John C. Calhoun, threatened to use the information to damage Jackson's standing ahead of the election of 1828. Buchanan took the blame, as he ought, and followed up by campaigning hard for Jackson once again. Now, Andrew Jackson had absolutely no love for Buchanan at all, given the trouble the latter man had caused, and also that a world of cultural and personal differences divided them. But even so, Buchanan had shown loyalty. Even his ill-judged attempt to broker a bargain in 1824 had apparently been intended to put Jackson into the White House. That being the case, Jackson split the difference and named Buchanan minister to Russia. This was a very honorable posting. Russia then being one of the most powerful empires in the world, and its court known for magnificence. Buchanan took the job seriously, too, and performed well in his role. All that being said, Andrew Jackson was frankly happy to get Buchanan out of America and as far away as possible. Upon returning to the United States in 1833, Buchanan was offered a Senate seat for Pennsylvania, a role in which he would serve for a decade. Never very important or influential as a senator, Buchanan instead earned a reputation as a cheerful party loyalist. 
He was never known as a fanatic on just about any issue, however. During that decade in the Senate, Buchanan also took up residence alongside William Rufus Devane King, a fellow lifelong bachelor. King, serving as senator from Alabama, possessed an army of some 500 slaves, placing him among the ranks of the very wealthiest plantation masters. Biographers of Buchanan often suggest that King had a powerful influence in making the former sympathetic to slavery, and there's definitely something to that. Yet that is perhaps not the entire story. Buchanan and King both held the kind of genteel racist views common to those who viewed themselves as wealthy gentlemen. They could still differ on matters relating to slavery, but there's very little to suggest that Buchanan ever cared about slaves at all. He was seemingly indifferent to the matter, which is partly why even years later he had very little record on the subject and Republicans found it difficult to attack him. I should also pause to note that some historians presume Buchanan to have been homosexual. The evidence for this is, to be frank, very thin. There are some facts to legitimately point to, and you could read Buchanan's feelings that way, but principally only by taking very isolated evidence and assuming that's all of importance on the subject. Now, I am not saying that Buchanan wasn't gay. It is certainly possible that he was. He never pursued a wife, Buchanan and King definitely enjoyed each other's company, and apparently neither wanted to live alone. They were very emotionally close, and they often attended public functions together. However, even in gossipy Washington, high society reported that Buchanan simply didn't seem to have any great desire for romance. And let's face it, Buchanan and King wouldn't be the first men to have a lifelong bromance instead. The evidence for anything more remains really too thin to judge. Additionally, it's not hard to imagine that a man who had suffered such a tragedy in past romance and being focused on work and politics might lack any interest in other kinds of relationships. Buchanan simply may not have desired anyone in that way anymore. A related point is that Buchanan wasn't entirely alone either. Over the years, Buchanan took over the full-time care of seven orphaned relatives and helped out with others. These did not necessarily reside with him full-time, but he evidently needed to hire a housekeeper just to manage the chaos day to day. Regardless of his oddball personal life, after years in the Senate, Buchanan had assembled a certain amount of prestige. In the election of 1843, however, he found his support for the Democratic nomination as presidential candidate very slim. He had some amount of influence, but not enough to attract votes. Yet Pennsylvania was still a powerful state, and Buchanan still important to the party there. Plus, he had diplomatic experience. Therefore, after the election, newly elected President Polk nominated Buchanan to the very prestigious post of Secretary of State. Not only was this the cabinet post most likely to lead to the presidency itself, but foreign affairs dominated the next four years of the Polk administration. Unfortunately, the secretary and the president did not get along that well. Buchanan's advice was for whatever seemed most convenient for Buchanan at the moment, not necessarily intended for Polk's benefit. This made Buchanan appear more than a little jumpy, constantly flipping from one position to another. Polk just never got along with Buchanan, who had no consistent policy, but Buchanan was at least competent in the role. He earned the moniker Old Public Functionary for a reason. After a few years out of power during the Taylor-Fillmore administration, Buchanan again tried to drum up support to become presidential candidate himself in 1852. This time everyone took his candidacy much more seriously, and with good reason. Buchanan achieved a high public standing as a result of both his years of public service and diplomatic positions. 
he had demonstrated party loyalty in many times and campaigned effectively to deliver Pennsylvania to the Democrats again and again. His home state also remained quite important to the presidential election. Only New York State had more influence. Buchanan also had the distinction, if not the honor, of being a very pro-Southern and pro-slavery Democrat, or what was then called a doughface. This held both advantages and disadvantages for him. On the upside, strong Southern support was quite valuable given the size of the region and the strong Democratic Party voting edge, with the slow decline of the Whigs there. But unlike Stephen Douglas, Buchanan had little connection with the much larger Northern electorate. In the end, the opportunity went to Pierce, another more or less pro-Southern man, as a compromise candidate between two strong party factions. Interestingly, Buchanan opted not to become vice president, and that honor went instead to William Rufus King. King, however, would suddenly die after only a month in office, and the position remained vacant, in fact, until Buchanan's own election. Buchanan received excellent recompense for his support in the campaign and also his personal loss in the form of a prestigious post as Minister to Britain. In the 19th century, this was the single most significant position in the American diplomatic corps. The British Empire had risen to its zenith, and London had become one of the world's most elegant cities. The job generally went to the best and brightest the United States had to offer, the very first example being founding father John Adams himself. In Whitehall, James Buchanan accomplished relatively little, but there wasn't all that much to accomplish. With no major outstanding issues dividing the interests of the United States and Great Britain, he had a fair amount of time on his hands. Apart from a prospective treaty outlining the possibility of a joint Anglo-British project for a canal across Nicaragua, Buchanan emerged with no great successes or shames to his name. Except one. The Ostend Manifesto. This brings us to a frankly bizarre story of diplomatic intrigue that accomplished nothing but it is a good moment to discuss the life and death of American expansionism. I had to hope to explain much more of this, but it's a serious digression that needs its own episode. The very quick explanation is that following the Mexican-American War, some kept up a spirit of adventurism, or a mad scramble for colonial possessions depending on your point of view. South America had been in turmoil for decades, and men known as filibusters, or freebooters, came up with various schemes to take control of some land or even a whole nation. Note that these were most definitely not exclusively or even mainly American. Prominent filibusters included South Americans and Europeans alike. Yet pro-slavery hardliners in the United States viewed filibustering as an opportunity to spread slavery and gain political leverage within America. And so at times they raised substantial sums and recruited volunteers to go on various expeditions, such as Narcisco Lopez's failed attempts to conquer Cuba, or William Walker's surprisingly successful takeover in Nicaragua. The problem was that in the end, all the filibustering failed, and most of the leaders wound up dead. But from the mid-1840s to the mid-1850s, it caused repeated tensions as filibusters operated from American shores. We should note this did not occur with the agreement of federal authorities, as regardless of who was in the White House, no government officer wanted to sanction private military actions or put up with the diplomatic consequences. But it's a long way from the District of Columbia to New Orleans, and filibusters found it relatively easy to operate. To a degree, they had the support of urban Southerners, who thought them dashing, and urbane Southerners, who had reasons to support them politically. Now this brings us to the Manifesto. In 1854, Secretary of State William Marcy 
who previously served alongside Buchanan in the Polk administration, asked several of America's diplomats to work up a diplomatic solution to acquiring Cuba. President Pierce wanted to do this, more or less to shore up slaveholding, but pretending it was purely expansionist. It's a rare day when blind aggression and conquest is considered the less damaging excuse in both public perception and diplomacy, but that's where matters lay. At this time, Cuba seemed like a rich prize to the ambitions of hungry slaveholders, but there were problems. Unlike previous acquisitions, it was already well settled with a developed administration. Pro-slavery, pro-aggression Southerners also failed to consider that, precisely because slavery was already well entrenched there, there was little opportunity for white Americans to settle. Finally, the island lay within the jurisdiction of Spain, which had lost almost all its other colonial holdings and would not surrender rich, productive Cuba easily. And neither Britain nor France wanted to see the United States acquire Cuba either, which would extend American power into the Caribbean and potentially threaten their own interests. Cuba made for a very convenient buffer. Nonetheless, at Marcy's behest, Buchanan and two other diplomats met in Ostend, Belgium, and over the course of several months put together a letter explaining American policy regarding Cuba in a rational way that would reassure France and Britain while pressuring Spain. Probably diplomatic efforts would go forward with an offer of a very large payment to Spain in exchange for the island, or at least, you know, Cuba's independence. Or at least, that's what they should have done. In reality, the Ostend Manifesto came across like the ravings of fire-eating secessionists, almost because it was. Pierre Sole, the minister to Spain, more or less drove the report. Sole was actually born in France, but fled due to his revolutionary ideology. Upon settling in Louisiana, however, he apparently discovered that slavery was very compatible with his brand of liberalism. At Ostend, he persuaded his fellow diplomats to support the immediate acquisition of Cuba, threatened Spain with war if this was not done, and made it very clear that the sole reason to grab it was to support slavery. Moreover, Soleil cheerfully publicized the meetings and let everyone know what was going on. The net result was that Buchanan signed his name to a document that immediately exploded in the Pierce administration's collective face. The Democrats lost their majority in Congress partly over this issue and partly over Kansas. Meanwhile, in Europe, precisely nobody thought that slavery was a particularly good reason to let Americans have Cuba. Spain's response was, as may be imagined, a hair short of apoplectic, and Sole resigned rather than take back a single word of the Ostend Manifesto. There were, however, three saving graces for Buchanan. First, he wasn't the driver of events and therefore received less attention compared to the flamboyant Soleil. Second, in causing trouble for President Pierce, he also stayed out of the increasingly chaotic mess in Kansas and its political consequences. Third, to the extent he had been involved, Buchanan strengthened his ties to pro-slavery Southern Democrats. Thus, when he returned to the United States, Buchanan became a very convenient political cat's paw for Democrats opposing Stephen Douglas. James Buchanan was a Northerner, and as mentioned from the politically important state of Pennsylvania. However, his record on slavery wasn't especially extreme, as while he had never opposed the practice, he had also voted against pro-slavery measures in some part, such as the gag rule. His backing of the Austin Manifesto, could be portrayed as a measure of supporting expansionism and not slavery. And Buchanan's long public service had brought in a certain amount of political gravitas. 
He also planned his campaign fairly skillfully, and actively supported the American or Know-Nothing Party in certain states in order to divide the anti-Kansas-Nebraska vote. Thus, he went into office as the 15th President of the United States. As mentioned previously, James Buchanan would become the last president born in the 18th century, and it's probably no accident that he got along so well with pro-slavery congressmen. He saw himself as a gentleman of character and an oligarchic quasi-aristocracy that once ran the country, and they were the last echo of that in a way. Elsewhere, the nation jumped eagerly into Jacksonian populism. Yet while Buchanan may have once supported Jackson, he never was much of a populist. He supported his party, and his party in turn supported him. His friendship with William Rufus King, of whatever character, also brought him into the social circles of the Southern elite. He liked them personally, and in his brand of politics, that was enough. And yet, the most damning judgment on Buchanan is that his life betrays a certain futility. He never had a political program, or any clear ideology, and he ascended to each new office in turn like a bureaucrat ascending the ranks. He never seemed to have any goals beyond getting the next rank. And while his influence in terms of practical politicking was strong, he never put it to any thoughtful use. Men like Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay didn't just build political movements. They moved or tried to move the country towards their vision of the future. Buchanan had no vision at all, and in the end couldn't conceive of doing anything other than keeping the nation right where it was. In that sense, it's no wonder he opposed abolitionists at every turn. They obviously wanted to change something, and he simply wouldn't. Buchanan was a man whose career outlived his time. Upon inauguration in March of 1857, Buchanan was nearly 67 years old. He was the second oldest man to have ascended to the presidency. Only William Henry Harrison had been older, and he promptly died in office. More than a century of titanic developments in medicine would go by before any man took office at an age older than Buchanan. But his deficiencies were not merely physical, although his lack of stamina and energy were noticed very quickly. Instead, his outlook on the nation's politics was decades out of date, and he failed to understand the radical changes that had already coursed through it. James Buchanan was a man long past his prime. The great pity of it is that in 1857, the country desperately needed strong leadership and would not receive it. Next episode, we will explore some of the consequences of that loss. Join us for episode 19, Bleeding Kansas. I hope you'll join us for the American Civil War podcast next time. And thank you for listening.